What's it like to read something you wrote four years ago? I still am trying to say, this is what was written then, let it be. That was beautiful then, and that was honest, and it still is. Welcome to Voices of the Future. I'm Stuart Kestenbaum. In this series, I'm interviewing young writers and poets from Maine, all of whom have participated in programs of The Telling Room, a nonprofit writing center in Portland. The Telling Room's mission is to empower youth through writing and to share their voices with the world. All of the authors in the series are featured in A New Land, an anthology of 30 poems written at The Telling Room. When I read or hear the work of these writers, I am moved by their enthusiasm, skill, and courage. Some of them were born in Maine, others have come here from Africa and the Middle East. I'll speak with urgency about their lives and their futures. In this episode, I'm talking with Amanda Detman. Amanda graduated from Yarmouth High School, and now she's getting her MFA in creative writing at NYU. She published her poetry collection, Untranslatable Honeyed Bruises, through the Telling Room's Young Emerging Authors Fellowship. Amanda starts with reading the title poem from her collection. Untranslatable Honeyed Bruises. My grandmother was known for kneading pasta dough. Ribbons of watered-down flour elastically extended from ceiling to hardwood countertops. Thin edible braids woven around her wrists. She prayed in the dough, cupping her embroidered hands into a quilt of promise where all days ended with open doors. She counted in the dough. One, two, three, one, two, three children lined up like feed sack dresses on the clothesline. We were her boiling water, her cherished roots of ginger in oak bowls. We were the ones gripping her fallen eyebrows, her stretched out canvas-like skin. We were the ones holding her splintered palms on crooked porches. There were loaves of burnt sourdough on her back, but she never wavered between the lines of a baker's dozen and a speck of wheat. Her faith a mosaic of plums coated in sugar, thumbs dripping with trembling juice. Her patterned cheeks entire universes curled with constellations under the noses of revival, regeneration, she finally swallowed our frayed scraps of saris down her gutter, almost blindfolded by our trails of squash dimples that never amounted to much. My grandmother wasn't the kind to be disarmed of lace. And we kissed her toes one last time. Thank you. Uh, untranslatable honeyed bruises. When did you write that? I wrote this my senior year of high school. Tell me about the title. I think I've loved that word, untranslatable. How do we take something that can't be described in everyday life, but still get 99% there? I will never be able to perfectly say who my grandmother was, but I can get as close as I think and honeyed bruises, I think we go through life with bruises and imprints from our experiences and the people we meet. 
but honeying them is taking the sweetness of those. And that's the lasting impression of the person. Like a distillation. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like in a way with poetry, you're always uh, ones at the edge of what you're trying to say, but can't, can't be said always. So you, you, you do it through images. So had the, how, what was the genesis of the poem? Like, did you just say, oh, I want to write about my grandmother? Or did you know the image of the pasta dough? Was that like a very strongest image or in your head when you think of her? This is my Nana from California. She is a very delicate person. <laughs> I laugh because the other night my family was talking about when she would eat dinner, she would just pick at the food with the fork. But then once you put cheesecake in front of her, it's everything indulged. <laughs> but trying to show that through other images and kind of imagining her in other places, not just the kitchen, but on a porch because her house didn't really have a porch, imagining her in places that I wasn't used to seeing her, but still trying to get across that she's fragile, but also have been through so much. She's such a strong woman, I think, that runs through our family. What kind of discoveries did you make in the poem, like ending with kissing her toes? Did you, at the beginning, say, oh, this is where the poem's going to end? The most revised part is the middle and how it looks on the page. I think I've changed it hundreds of times. But... And we kissed her toes one last time. It always sounds like hearing this back from four years ago a little bit obvious, but then also in my head it's, you don't really kiss somebody's toes. I think it still is surprising in a way, instead of kissing somebody's forehead, ending with a part of the body that is not really seen, but is still treading the earth and walking places. Right. What's it like to read something you wrote four years ago? Do you uh, revise it in your head when you read it? Do you just say, this is, I wrote this four years ago, this is it? I think this is one of the stronger ones from four years ago. This has been entered in a lot of like competitions and contests, but I still am trying to say, this is what was written then, let it be. That was you then, don't change something from the past. Like I'll go through the book maybe once a year or something and seeing the ones that are less strong in my mind now but saying that was beautiful then and that was honest and it still is I think I've strengthened my craft a lot in the last four years and I want to continue to do that it's something unique of that year in that moment and this was you were a senior yeah yeah, yeah. when you'd, you'd already started at the telling room when did you start doing things at the telling room Senior year of high school. And so you just graduated from college. Yes. Where was that? Marist College. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to go to NYU. Going to immerse myself in the writing scene there. Very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Did you always know you, you wanted to write? I think it was seventh grade that really, that year, there was more opportunities to perform things. And then definitely high school, I got into Poetry Out Loud, where you perform on a stage and you have to memorize something. So it was terrifying. <laughs> and where did you go to high school? I went to Yarmouth High School. Well, let's read this, the second poem, which you had said it was a pandemic poem. Have you been writing a lot? I'm a weird writer. I write in spurts, and then I have to take a break. I can't write 
every day and I want to, but sometimes it's better for me to take a step back. And has this particular moment in our history, you know, with the pandemic, seems like it really inspired you in this poem. Some people feel like, oh, I can't do anything. Other people maybe feel vital in a certain way because everything feels so dormant or down. Mm. How about for you? I was thinking about this. I think this morning, this has been such a time of loss in so many ways, but also I think I found more of myself and that I am driven to create opportunities for others to tell their story. And I think that has increased more in my life ever during the pandemic of reaching out to others and creating even deeper connections without anything in return. I think we are craving that more than ever now. And I'm really grateful that this has happened, that we can slow down in a way, even though so much has changed and we've had to learn how to adapt our family structures where we live, economic things for months. Like how in mourning you can feel alive. Yes. Good. Well, why don't we Yeah, read this one? I know this one by heart, but... Oh, you do? Should I look at it? Whatever you want to do. <laughs> okay. I might be a word or two off. When they ask me what will be the first thing I do after this is over. I do not know what it feels like to give birth to a child. But right now there is a sound sizzling every night at 7 p.m. across New York City, across rooftops and gutters and stickered bus benches. Clapping for doctors, nurses, everyone on the front lines. City as an entire city stopping to make the same motion at the same time. A 10-year-old clapping while her moon landing puzzle pieces cartwheel across the woven rug. A 45-year-old mother clapping while her tomatillo soup sings, her engagement ring a ballet not of being found, but of finding someone who sees. A 98-year-old great-grandfather clapping, standing at his window with his bent cane, glasses so unfogged and unafraid, it hurts a little to open wider. How weird for pieces of the body to choose themselves. For we have always known foreign freckles, wrinkled, unrelated palms, cherried thumbs, not our own, sandpapering the same space we both call home, our dangling limbs touching each other so more people can touch again. There is a plant named Bougainvillea. I am naming my daughter Bougainvillea the daughter we are all growing during this time, because she will stretch, taking nothing for granted into a new vine we call now, we call Monday afternoons at the office, we call nights, sipping wine with strangers, nothing will taste bitter again. Bougainvillea will thirst to say thank you, anytime, anywhere, with anyone. Bougainvillea will feed on firsts, a feast of anything, any place, any moment, anybody, because we have forgotten how starved we have been.
how a quarter of an inch of butter did not mean a thing. A paper movie ticket. Scissors through hair. Sleeping next to someone. Holding my grandmother has been a decade of drought and all the water is yelling at me, do it now. Do it now. We are in battle, this battle, to prove that bougainvillea is a climbing plant even when the dictionary says its flowers are insignificant and cannot move. To prove that we are not machines addicted to repetition, addicted to repetition, addicted to repetition. Our papery green thumbs were once born as thin sheets of metal, once gloved and greedy, masked and eyeless. Our thumbs were shields to touch and be touched, to kiss and be kissed to breathe and be breathed into. We have forgotten that a fly can still find its fire, even in capture, and we are that fly. Bougainvillea, you are blind now, but I promise you will photograph this world one day in its most naked state of being. Black and white, no one is there. Click, snap, flutter, flare. You will name a plastic grocery bag dancing in air alone on the street as its own word. This. Wow. That was all memorized. How many of your poems have you committed to memory? Not a lot. <laughs> and how about, why this one? Something about it, I wanted the rhythm to be ingrained. I think it holds a different rhythm than other poems I've written, and a lot of people have asked me if this is more of a slam poem. I read it, you know, a few times beforehand, but when you did that, I was, you know, I was just thinking clap, like the italics were for emphasis, but it was an actual <laughs> clap. And, uh, the Bougainvillea, how did that come into your mind? My family has visited St. John and the U.S. Virgin Islands. There's Bougainvillea everywhere on the island. There's a lot of stores even called Bougainvillea. <laughs> so something about that has stayed with me of, it's kind of like ivy, of growing and clinging onto a surface and not being apologetic for that owning its existence, and I love that. And what's your writing process like? Did you revise this a lot? I don't think I did. I had two pieces of it. I had the bougainvillea part was one of the first things, so I think it was how do I put these two things together, and it, it did just didn't feel finished with just the New York City part. I had to widen it to become more universal because not everyone is from New York City. And you don't, you don't have to be, I don't think. But yeah, I'm, I'm a weird writer and sometimes I get so much of it down in the first go. And I know that it's, this is one that I gotta keep revising. What other kinds of poems have you written since you've been home? If this is a theme, doubt. I feel like I've had a personal journey <laughs> from March to now of learning who I am 
just really digging into things that I want to grow on myself and how to be better in so many kinds of relationships in my life. What really matters, I think, is what we're all learning during this time. Also, like graduating from college is a big moment of summing up in a way, and then to be in your generation where that coincides with a pandemic that we've never experienced before. Uh, and then you're, you're about to embark on a brand new adventure of going to New York City to, you know, to write. Uh, you're so excited about it's big transitions. And it's, it's transitions that I've had without closure is what I would say. I didn't get to say goodbye to hundreds of people at my college. So how do I create poems that can still feel like we're unified in some way, but we're still grieving that? And I also would say I've written a lot about family ancestry and lots of things of dealing with racism, even throughout a family history and how to unveil that and maybe say, you know, you can't always say it was the times, <laughs> that there can be problems in your family and you still need to write those down or they get lost. So I've been digging up a lot. So you grew up in Maine. Is Maine figure in your work, do you think? I was born in Michigan. I was so young when we moved. I was three years old. But a lot of people come up to me all the time and they're, they say, your voice is like, where are you from? You have this Midwestern thing. And I think that has to do with sounds. I wouldn't say like, I read about lobsters and like the pine trees. I'm less of a location placed writer, but the sounds of the places I've been stick with me because I think sound is my favorite thing of poetry. Mm -hmm. Can you say anything more about the sound of Maine? I think of it like the boat ride where you're alone in the boat, but everybody is still on shore. Like we're all together in the same space, even if we're not on that shared boat of the same experience out in the water, screaming and water flying everywhere. Everybody's still cheering each other on. I think it's a state that has so much support of anyone in a community. I especially felt that growing up. So the sound of Maine, it just, it's like an audience that's there and is willing to listen, but also you're sitting back and learning, I have to listen to everybody around me because they're coming from all different places around the world. So, especially Portland, especially here at the telling room, there's something special about this place. Kids coming from all over the world, you're sitting in the same room with people from places so different than you know and hearing their perspectives is like something I'll never forget. Voices of the Future is hosted and conceived by me and produced by Josephine Holtzman and Isaac Kestenbaum at Future Projects with help from Carly Perruccio. The music in this episode is by Jordan Kramer. The series is made possible by the Academy of American Poets with funds from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. To learn more about The Telling Room and its programs, visit tellingroom.org. I'm Stuart Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. <laughs>